This is Andrew Jorgis of the Jorgis Law Firm, and you are listening to the Real Talk Podcast. What's going on, guys? This is Talk with the Real Talk Podcast. As always, I appreciate you all listening. We're over 3,300 streams. I'm really stoked for that. Uh, this is we've done. We've recorded over 47 episodes. So uh, enjoy the next few ones. Uh, the most previous one was my friend James Petrie. If you haven't listened, listen to him. He represents our market out in the Hamptons. He is, him and his family are the founding brokers of the Hamptons market. And we go into all details of the local life, living in the Hamptons, what it was like growing up with his dad, who's one of the top agents there, uh, the surf life, the top restaurants and bars, you know, the Hamptons. So uh, enjoy that. And today, I want to do another podcast episode with one of our previous guests, Andrew Georges. Hailing from Montville, New Jersey, Andrew graduated from Cardozo Law and has been practicing real estate law for over 11 years. Andrew recently launched his own practice, congratulations, while still being retained as the counsel over at his previous law firm, Adam Lightman Bailey PLLC. Andrew's practice is called the Georges Law Firm PLLC, or if you want to roll the R, Jorge's Law Firm PLLC. Follow him on Instagram at Jorge's Law Firm, J-O-R-G-E-S Law Firm, or on his website, www.georgeslawfirm.com. Andrew, thanks for coming. Welcome to the show again. Thank you for having me, and your Spanish 3 teacher is very proud of you for being able to still roll your R's this way. I think the R in Spanish and R in Japanese is somewhat related. So Japanese people tend to be able to speak Spanish or pronounce Spanish better than English. I know we're getting off track here, but anyways. Um, so I wanted to first quickly dive in to your new gig. You started your own law firm. Your previous law firm still wants you, so you're still technically retained there for business for, for business wise. Um, why did you go solo? What's going on there? So yeah, beyond excited, I opened up my own law firm about four months ago doing almost the exact same thing I was doing in my old firm. Um, and yeah, it's an exciting, exciting few months. Um, it's been a very busy time in the New York City real estate market. For, for anybody who's in the market knows that New York's back, uh, coming back strong, high number of volume transactions, and what a time for me to have done it uh, on my own, going on my own. And yeah, I maintain a relationship, enough counsel relationship with my prior law firm. Um, the managing partner there has been incredibly gracious uh, since I've gone out on my own. And uh, yeah, opening up my own business has been, it's been incredibly exciting for me. What's the story behind the decision? I'm sure it took a year or two. Many people that I know that start their own business after having health insurance, benefits, a 401k plan, salary, stable salary, weekends off, uh, paid vacation, paid sick days, paid leave. It's very cushion. It's very cushy. It's very comfortable. So what was the deciding factor for you to go on your own and how long did it take you to get there? I mean, my, I think, you know, my background is I come from a family of entrepreneurs in the sense that they were all small business owners. I grew up in a house of retail furniture. Um, and so the business was like another child 
uh, in the family. I mean, it takes up oxygen and it's a commitment, but you see it grow and you reap the benefits of that. So, I mean, in this apartment, every night I'd go to bed and I would just dream about being my own boss, managing my own clients, marketing and seeing that develop into a business that grows. And so, you know, for the last, I'd say, for the last few years, I've been thinking about this, dreaming about it. I love the flexibility of it. Um, I work when I want to work. If I want to work really late, I work really late. If I want to work really early, I work really early. I work seven days a week and I work seven days a week. I mean, the, the control of it, you know, I don't answer to anybody but myself. So um, that's why I did it. And yeah, it's an exciting start. Good. How long has it been since you got on your own? A few months, correct? Yeah, February 8th was my first day on my own. Okay, so a few months in, what kind of advice can you give to those that are perhaps a few months in? Um, advice to give to people thinking thinking about going in on their own? No, just just as they started, you're a few months in, It's you could still see, the, the ship has sailed, but you could still see the land behind you. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Um, advice well I guess um, you can never be when it comes to doing what I've done you can never be over prepared I thought going on my own I was over prepared in some aspects but there's no such thing as being over prepared um, you can always do more you can always be more you can always have for example documents prepared uh, for upcoming transactions or templates or letterheads or bank accounts lined up and you know, there's just so much that goes into owning your own business, making sure your bookkeeper understands your business model and how they account for certain transactions. You can never be over-prepared, doesn't Good. exist. Good. Do you have more free time now that you own your own business or less? Way less. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Yeah, I worked a lot. I've always worked a lot. I've never been allergic to hard work. I've never, I don't think I, I've taken maybe one or, or two week-long vacations in the 10 years since I started practicing law. I don't take week-long vacations, I don't believe in it, it's just my own personal thing, nothing against anybody else who does it. I've never done that. I've always worked my tail off. And How does your wife feel about that? She's great, very supportive about it. Yes. I mean, listen, like any, like any supportive spouse, I mean, she wants to make sure that I make time for, you know, when we're on vacation that you make time for a vacation. But, sure. but Working on your own is a completely different animal. It's like comparing apples to zebras. I mean, it's like, I work all day, every day. I love it. I'm not complaining, but you know, yeah, you gotta put in time if you wanna be your own boss, you gotta put in the time. Good. Let's go back, let's go jump, let's pivot. I like to abuse that word pivot on my podcast. Let's pivot into sales, 2021. We're in April, first quarter's done. It's a wrap. We got people coming back into the city. New York City is feeling alive. The restaurants are starting to open up. Every time Cuomo has a sex scandal, he lets more people into the restaurants and bars. The July 1st is apparently, we're, we're full open in July 1st. I mean, things are about to pop off, I think. And those New Yorkers that went off, nothing against them, but those New Yorkers that left us and bought homes in Miami and Westchester and Connecticut, good for them. But I have a feeling that those buyers may have perhaps overbought by a couple percentage points and now some of them might be coming back in and may not face the reality that they were expecting or may, may not expect what they were, may not expect to see what they're about to expect 
based on the transactional activity that is going on in Manhattan today. So let's see, uh, what are you seeing on your end? As I mean, you do a lot of my closings, but you, you know, you represent a lot of brokers all over the city. What do you, what do you see? It is absolute pandemonium. Bonkers. It is, it is unlike, I mean, certainly, I have never seen, the, in the 11 years that I've been at it, I haven't seen anything like this. Um, what am I seeing? Just the volume of transactions happening is just uh, immense. There was a two to three month period in 2020 where nothing happened. No deals moved, right? There were no contracts really signed, no, no incoming business. So, you know, you gotta make up for that time. People are starting to come back out of, out of, the, uh, uh, out of the doldrums of the winter and it is overwhelming. So what does that mean in terms of uh, real estate transactions and what that means for potential buyers? The pendulum went from being completely one-sided to buyers in the midst of the pandemic to now completely coming back, right, to sellers where you have sellers who are telling buyers waive mortgage contingencies. You've got sellers telling buyers, you gotta sign a contract by next Tuesday or else I'm going with another buyer. You've got sellers saying, you know what, I'm gonna have a bidding war. I want $50,000 more if you want this deal to get wrapped up today. I mean, you're just seeing sellers take back control and leverage of deals and, you know, it's 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 wild how quickly it's happened. I mean, the, you know, we, I mean, we did deals where from one day to the next, the market just drove right off of a cliff and then now seemingly 14 months later, there's so, just so much activity. It's Everything started to turn around around March 1 for me. And uh, I mean, we, I've, I think I gave you a few deals within a, a few days span where it was just like, well, what happened? I have never experienced this. Where it, it, it felt like, it's like jumping into a pool for the first time in 20 years. You're like, oh, I kind of forgot how to swim. Um, really interesting phenomenon. Uh, the one deal that we did, we're still working on. It was only it was a five dude five days due diligence, thirty days close cash. I mean, when was the last time we saw that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in, not in Brooklyn, in Manhattan. Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, the, like like every like all good things they must end. So this wave is not going to last forever, right? Um, but what do you think? When do you think it's going to come back? Uh, I mean, the, I hope this wave lasts until at least the end of the year because we got hammered last year. Yeah. We got yeah. abused last year. So I hope it comes back. You know, we, I was out of work for three months. I mean, like it or not, a lot of brokers were. And, yeah. and, and, and similar to you. Uh, but brokers had literally no transactions from March 15th till about June 22nd. June 22nd was phase two of New York City openings. So, you know, seeing this today in hindsight, knowing if we knew what was about to happen, Maybe it would have been nice. We could have taken a three-month vacation. I, I, mean, I would have gone to uh, I would have somewhere in the Caribbean for a month. Or two. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, what, what's anything interesting that you've seen in particular that you're working on right now, or that you worked on in the last few months? What am I seeing? Or any any case that any interesting case studies? Anything specific deal-wise? Certainly, you know, while the market is is humming now, certainly you're, what I'm what I'm dealing with now uh, is the ramifications of that initial um, downturn post immediate pandemic. So contract disputes, right? Some of them are still getting worked out. I mean, you know, you end up in a, in a, in a lawsuit over a contract deposit that doesn't get, 
it doesn't get resolved right away. Mm -hmm. So what you saw in April of last year, May, June, July, a lot of buyers who were in contract said, you know what, the market's 30% off of what it was when I went into contract. I want to get out of this deal. And they looked for you know different reasons to try to get out of deals. And now you're starting to see those disputes tr try to resolve themselves a little bit. And it's, you know, it's slow, but uh, that's the reality of it. Are you still putting in act of God or COVID clauses in contracts? Yes. Yeah, so that is a very common, that's a very common provision that you're seeing now. Go uh, into detail about that. What exactly is that for listeners? Yeah. So force majeure, act of God. So what happens if for reasons beyond our control or for reasons beyond what we can foresee when we sign this contract, things that are out of our control, government strikes, pandemics, terrorist acts, what union, union strikes that happens correct always always on the 11th hour and then the question becomes well um what does that mean to our contract what does that do to our contract if it makes it difficult for me to, to perform under the contract do i still have to close do i still have to buy this do i still have to sell it and so a lot of the contracts pre-pandemic didn't have that provision there was nothing that addressed surprisingly didn't the standard form contract just doesn't have that provision so now post-pandemic you're seeing a lot of attorneys put in a provision that and you know you kind of see the same kind of provision make the rounds with the attorneys and now you, there's a, there's a fair so so what happens when can a buyer exercise a covid clause or an act of god clause like how does that benefit the buyer so it depends on how it gets negotiated the a force majeure provision depends on how it really gets negotiated what what i'm seeing a lot of right now is Sellers are saying, hey, listen, yeah, I'll give you a force majeure provision that gives you some relief in the event of an act of God. I'll give you relief, meaning I'll let you extend the closing a little bit, but I'm not going to let you out of the deal. So that seems to be now where the dust settles, where a lot of transactional attorneys are saying, hey, listen, yeah, we'll acknowledge that there is a pandemic and that there are things out of our control that may delay closing, but this is by no means grounds to cancel the contract. We'll adjourn it. We'll extend it. We'll give you more time, but we're not letting you out of this thing. You signed a contract. You got to close. Got it. So it really benefits the seller in terms of time, not in terms of getting out of the deal. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, we had a, uh, didn't we add in a provision? We did one over at 90 North 5th. It was an act of God or a COVID clause. The first time I saw a COVID clause, and that was last year, April, I believe. Uh, the name of the seller shall be undisclosed at this time. <laughs> but, uh, did that, we go into contract on that deal? It was, the, they the signed period? after March 15th, that's for sure. We still got that contract signed. Many of our other deals fell apart. Uh, so hindsight, some of those buyers still should have closed and they would have probably made more money because some of our sellers actually reduced the price to get get it signed. It was almost at the goal line. You saw a lot of that. You saw, you saw in the midst of the pandemic, you saw a lot of people, a lot of sellers said, hey, listen, rather than fight you over forcing you to close, I'll give you a, I'll get, listen, just because, I'll give you, I'll give you a 10% haircut. 40,000 bucks, 40,000 yeah. bucks, just take it. Yeah, yeah. And, and the buyer's still backed down. And some buyers still tried to get out. Yeah, listen, the, and I was thinking about when we last did the, our podcast was, I think, 18-ish uh, months ago. It was in December of 2019. That's right. And how different the universe looks today mm -hmm. than it, it did in, in December 2019. And I know at the time we were like, oh, well, what's 2020 going to look like? I just... I don't know how you, how do you summarize the last 18 months in like, you know, a short little sentence? Yeah, no, I know. I mean, if, if we could offer, if we could offer see the future, we would all be billionaires. So let's shift gears. We just did a deal. We're doing a deal right now 
in in Lincoln Square. Lincoln Square is a co-op comprised of about six buildings. They used to be rental, probably about 1970s construction. My favorite year, architecturally speaking, 1970, 1971. Uh, buildings were built larger. The layouts were always more gracious. There was more land in Manhattan back in the day. Uh, the concrete construction is very solid, really solid, solid buildings. But you did something called Eagle Nine Title Insurance. What exactly is that? And why is it needed? Eagle Nines, yes. Um, Eagle Nines are, we were talking title policies now, I like it. We're, right. get, we're getting into the details. Because, <laughs> because to, when you buy a co-op, you're not buying the land. So there's, there's title on land. Correct. There's no title on a bunch of stock options, shares. What exactly is Eagle Nine and why does a co-op buyer need it? Good question. So I think first you got to answer the question of what is title insurance? Title insurance is insurance that purchasers of property buy uh, to ensure the legitimacy of the transaction, to ensure that the seller is the seller, they actually own the property, there's no fraud going on, it's not Joe Schmo off the street selling it to you and you're buying a lemon, right? Or something that's not there. there. So that's what, you know, it ensures you against fraud is the most obvious thing. When you're buying real property, condos, single family, multifamily properties, you can get title insurance, a title company checks the land records to make sure that the seller is in fact a seller and they issue you a title policy that covers you during your ownership of the property. You pay a one-time premium at closing and it covers you for the duration of your ownership. Co-ops aren't real property. It's owning personal property, you own a pen, right? And so the question then is, if there's no land record to really deal with that, how do you get the same level of insurance? Typically, co-ops purchasers historically have not gotten insurance. They normally don't. Um, I bought my co-op, I didn't get an Eagle Line policy. Okay. However, because the pandemic um, has uh, created, and you know, really we're, we're closing in new ways, we're just, transfer agents are just sending out stock and leases telling people to hold them in escrow, and the closing procedures are such that, listen, it's, it might invite fraud. Some buyers, and there's a growing consensus that it might be a good idea to get title insurance. Maybe because of the pandemic? Just, well, in the normal, historically, you normally get Eagle Nine policies for estate sales, right? Somebody lost a stock and lease, there's a question as to ownership, so you get an Eagle Nine policy. During the pandemic, I've been seeing a pivot to, um, getting one because of the nature in which we're closing. That we're not doing sit down closings anymore where you and I are in a closing room, we're rubbing elbows, somebody brings a stock and lease, it gets canceled and then a stock and lease goes to the bank. We're not really doing those anymore, we're doing them in new ways. And so there's a potential that fraud gets invited into that new, into that new way of doing it. Because we're not in the same room, there's a pocket of error. Yeah, there, there's, there's, there's gaps in the exchange of the documents that are giving people some concern. And so that's why I'm seeing Eagle Nines coming out now. Got it. More so than I had before. How expensive is that? And that, is that the same cost as uh, the regular title insurance? I know it's fixed by the government, right? Uh, for fee simple property, for homes and condos, it's relatively fixed, I, I, I believe. For Eagle Nine, is it a, the same rule? Is it the same law? Or is it, there's 
uh, a variation on that? Yeah, similar in that it is a fixed fee, and yeah, title insurance, Eagle Nine or not Eagle Nines, or you know, regular uh, insurance policies are heavily regulated in terms of their fees by the by the government. Um, your title pot insurance, your title insurance premium for real property is typically about five thousand per million dollars of purchase. So you're buying for a million, you're going to buy somewhere in the neighborhood of five thousand dollars for policy. Eagle Nines are way less expensive. They're they're fairly inexpensive. I mean, you can get uh, it's probably under a thousand dollars for every five hundred thousand dollars worth of uh, purchase. Uh, so it, for, for for a couple bucks. Not a couple bucks, but not, it's not going to cost an arm or a leg. No, it's you're going to have that insurance. And to get and to give a shout out to a mutual friend of ours, Courtney Ronan, who if she's going to listen, hopefully she'll she'll say hey, thanks for shouting me out. But she works at um, the, the 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 company that issues these Eagle Nines is called First American. They're a major title insurance underwriter, and um, yeah, I work with Courtney Ronan on getting Eagle Nines, and she's great. And uh, if you're in the market for an Eagle Nine, reach out to her. Sounds good. Uh, as far as the title companies, I mean, just touched on, on our friend Ronan, but title companies, does it matter where a buyer goes and who chooses the title? Yeah, I think it, it does matter. I mean, you know, you can buy title insurance a number of different ways. There are a handful of large title insurance underwriters, your First Americans, your Old Republics, your Stewarts, Fidelity. They're the main players in title insurance policies. There are smaller companies. I try to, unless the, you know, the clients can dictate who they want me to purchase title insurance from, but normally the buyer's attorney picks title insurance um, and you go with the company that you think gives you the best service. Gotcha, okay. Because again, the fees are all very regulated. They're, they're, all, all, the same. they're all the same. It's, it's all about the service. service. Yeah. Gotta give our, gotta give our friend uh, Courtney Rona a little shout out there. Our, Recording Rodin over at Title Vest. All right, let's pivot a little bit. Now we will, now we're talking about this awesome, interesting. I would say awesome. Sorry, very, let me take that back. A very interesting Wall Street Journal article came out. Uh, the title of it was. You can Google this if you're listening. The New York City Co-op boards would love would would have to explain why they deny buyers under new bill. It's a it's a proposed bill. It hasn't passed yet but it became somewhat of a buzz within our industry and brokers have a lot of different feelings about it. Basically, for those that aren't aware, co-op boards can reject prospective residents for any reason that isn't protected under local and federal anti-discrimination laws, meaning boards cannot discriminate against race, creed, nationality, sexual orientation, uh, the type of job you have. Uh, just because you're a lawyer doesn't mean you can be discriminated against being a lawyer. Uh, but fair housing, no, the fair housing advocates say that the board's lack of accountability or transparency into their decision-making process opens the door up for discrimination. And, you know, that could be based on the buyer's race or, again, religion or uh, the, type of, the type of income that they generate. Now, I think we're touching on a very heavily debated topic during these times where human rights are a big issue. I mean, there was obviously the Me Too movement. That's a huge issue. Uh, BLM. I mean, there are so many movements that are happening in, in our modern society that I think makes, it brings the topic of, are co-ops really keeping up with the modern world today? I mean, when were they invented co-ops? In the 1970s? 
when there was no internet, the, it was a very, very, I would say segregated housing market where the rich Upper East Side buyers in the 70s and the 80s came in and bought up these apartments and made their own rules and business class laws shielded them from potential discrimination. Now, full disclosure, I believe New York City being a very democratic, liberal city, as it is, I mean, there's a lot of rich people, but still relatively democratic and liberal, I don't think there is a lot of discrimination with race, creed, nationality. I don't think Asians and blacks and Hispanics are discriminated against from buying co-ops. But that said, I want to get your thoughts, Andrew, on this proposed bill, and I'll give you some of my thoughts on what I just said. Super interesting issue. Interesting topic. Um, I think you've got to start with the understanding and acknowledgement that co-op boards, when reviewing a proposed, you know, an applicant, a purchaser, into their community, discriminates all the time. They, by definition, discriminate. They want to see your financials. They want to know what's your income. They want to know how long have you been in your employer. They, they want to know your credit history. They want to know have you ever defaulted under a loan? Have you ever been evicted? I mean, so they are asking all these questions because they are discriminating. They are discriminating, right? Discrimination isn't in and of itself a bad word. Unlawful discrimination that is where you run into trouble. They, like you were saying, you can't discriminate on the base of a protected class. So you, you're right, you're, we're, we're in a time where does the co-op scheme with respect to board approval, which could be for any or no reason, they don't, they don't have to tell you, any or no reason other than unlawful discrimination. How does that reconcile with the modern day issues that we're seeing? And one way that they've proposed of doing it is to require co-op boards to provide a basis for rejection. Now, I understand the intent there. The intent is to try to avoid or reduce the sorts of unlawful discriminations that people are going to have issues with. However, the flip side of the coin is if a co-op board is to, if you've got to put them on the record for stating what the basis is, they might open themselves up to litigation and lawsuits and liability, which I don't, you know, I'd have to see ultimately how the bill is written, what the bill requires of the board, what the bill requires of prospective purchasers in terms of disclosure to then make a decision and really have an opinion as to whether or not it's a good idea. I understand the, I understand what the problem is or what the issue they're trying to avoid is by passing this. At the same time, there's always unintended consequences of passing laws. And how are they going to address that liability component of it? I mean, maybe they can. I don't know. I have to see the final product. But it is a... Listen, Taki, you and I have worked on deals. There is nothing more demoralizing than a purchaser who has been looking for months and years and years, finds their dream apartment, puts in an offer, goes through contract review, waits, submits the application, and they get denied. And what the boards do is they don't tell you anything. They just say, you are rejected, period, paragraph. I mean, that is a, you know, and then you're back at square one. You don't know where you're living. Are you going to rent? Are you going to buy? Are you tomorrow? Are you going to move to Jersey City? <laughs> you know, it's, it, I get it. I, I'm torn. I have no, I, my, my opinion is that.
if it's poorly implemented? Your thoughts? At the, at the end of the day, co-ops are, co-op boards are run on a volunteer basis. The people that are on them are not getting paid. They're on them because they have, they want to help the building. They want to run the building to make sure it doesn't default, it doesn't run out of money, to make sure that the common areas are in good shape, the staff is happy, the residents are happy. I mean, they're doing it out of their own goodwill. But as in any industry, banking, law, cops, whatever, there's always bad apples in every group. And when those bad apples get in power and they become in charge of these decision-making processes, yes, are there, are there a minority of cases, but are there people out there discriminating? I would say, yeah, you're right. Now, to your point, opening co-op boards opening up for uh, more lawsuits. We rejected Mr. David Smith because of X and Y and Z. We discriminated, we rejected Sally Johnson because of X, Y, and Z. The best way to avoid litigation is by telling the public, and that includes brokers, that includes brokers that represent the building, not the building, represent the shareholder who's selling that apartment, is to get out front and say, we as this co-op, 123 Fifth Avenue, 123 Fourth Avenue, we as this co-op, our financial requirements are X, Y, and Z. Debt to income, 25% gross, uh, off your gross income. If you're self-employed, three years of personal take-home take -home income, and, that's, and that gross income of your take-home income has to be 25% debt to income. Your post-closing liquidity must be 24 months post-closing, after closing costs and down payment and your credit score or credit history must be X. If you lay it out in front and you lay it out to the public, then you essentially protect yourself from any sort of litigation based on you rejecting the buyer for financial reasons. Sorry, we rejected David Smith because he only, based on his gross income, his debt to income ratio was 30%. We want his monthly, the monthly mortgage maintenance interest is $2,500 a month, and he only earns $7,500 a month, which means more than 33% of your monthly income is going towards the housing obligations. We need somebody that earns $10,000 a month before taxes. Put it out there, get in front of it. Because if you put it out there, you get in front of it, and this becomes public, there's no reason a buyer would come in and feel insecure about getting rejected. ...and helpful. The, the problem that, I don't know what the, I don't know what the answer is. I think my, my short answer is I don't know what the answer is because if you have set objective metrics that you've got to adhere to, well then what happens if a less than financially suitable candidate offers four times the highest value in the building. If Are they you don't financially qualified, then they don't financially qualify. Even, it doesn't matter what the price So is. then the issue though is that as a as the board of a corporation, 
the board is given the business judgment, right? So we say the, the board, you know, should be able to manage its own affairs. And we're going to defer to the board's discretion. If the board thinks that putting aside those objective metrics is in the, is in the benefit of the building because they can accept a sale price at four times the highest value in the building, right? Now you're posting comps. I'm just using a crazy hypothetical as an example. You're now posting comps that are four times anything the building has ever seen. Well, the board has the discretion to make that determination, right? Like, do they go with a financially weak candidate, but who's, who is gonna post a hell of a sale price? Yeah, that might come to the detriment of unpaid maintenance. Right, like I don't know what the I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, I don't think the board. I don't think the board. First of all, it's a co-op. Seventy percent of housing stock that you can buy in New York City are co-ops. Yeah. There, it's very very rare that a comp two x over whatever else is trading is going to come in at two by by a inferior buyer. Put it that way. You know, in a condo, maybe different. If, if it's a Greenwich Village townhouse totally different you know it's unique products but co-ops are generally in mid-rise high-rise buildings and yeah. they're not they're not going to come 20 20 30 40 percent above what the appraised value agree i completely agree with you yeah. and and listen yet to your point 75 or whatever it is percent of the market in this in manhattan is co-op this affects an enormous this affects enormous part of the housing stock here oh yeah um oh yeah so you know, uh, and look, you, then you end up in a slippery slope. What, what do you see during the pandemic? Well, you see co-op boards discriminating on the basis of price, which we've seen. You hit it right on the yeah. head, right on the head. Co-op boards in New York City discriminate against the price more than race. And that, I think, is as factual as it gets. I would agree. Look, yeah, I would. You're probably right about that. Um, what is the rejection rate? I, I don't know if there's this, uh, an exact number, but I've read anywhere from three to 5% of proposed applicants get rejected, right? So of all the transactions that go on, you've got a rejection rate of three to 5%. Yeah, I would say of that three to 5%, I see price more, I mean, but it, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know what the, what the conversations are with co-op boards. I like to think the co-op boards would tend to be above board, no pun intended, and um, not discriminating unlawfully, but price is definitely one of those things that you see all the time. One hundred percent. I have, I have stories of board members calling the buyer directly and saying, "Hey, just wanted to let you know we didn't even look at the application because your price was too low." Click. That was it, and that was gracious enough for that board member to call the buyer and say, "We rejected your deal because of X, Y, and Z." Now, I I do have to, you know, we're, we're going to talk maybe another minute about this and we'll switch topics, but you know, it, do you support the bill and? If, if so, why? If not, what would you what would make it acceptable to you? I have to see the full thing. Um, I haven't seen I haven't seen the actual language. In, in your all right, so in your world, like what would be the ideal? If, yeah. if a bill had to come out, yeah, how would it have to be shaped? Yeah, in theory, am I am I for? Well, I'm certainly against unlawful discrimination. <laughs> oh, 100 percent, 100 percent. But I, but if if this bill was to come out. What would be appropriate for you? I think I would like to see, I would like to see more um, transparency in the board rejection process. I would. I think that would be helpful. So how we get there, I don't know. That's why you know I defer to those uh, to, to legislatures and, and people who, in their infinite wisdom, know better than I do. But 
as a as a tra real estate attorney in in the New York City market, seventy percent of co-ops. I see I see board rejections. I've had many of them. You've had them. Um, yeah, I would like to get a little bit more transparency on, at a minimum, what is the board looking for? They oftentimes even put in what they're looking for. They'll have certain general rules, but I wouldn't mind to see more transparency. Transparency is a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Let's also talk about modern day markets, right? Co-op's co reputation for exclusionary behavior is not really in anymore with the younger generation, Gen, Gen Z, Gen X buyers. Gen Z, Gen X buyers want a condo. They want a single family house. They don't want to get into grandpa's politics. Not, not trying to discriminate against older people, but they don't want to go into old world housing politics. I don't think mo most buyers that outside of those that maybe grew up in the co-op world, if you're, if you're a Long Island native or New Jersey native or Washington DC native, and you grew up in a single family house or a condo, most likely from the suburbs, and you come into New York City because you want to, you know, and you work and you want to buy something. I feel like the co-op mentality is is just such an old world thought process, and it becomes an unattractive option housing wise. Some of them may just say, you know what, forget it. I'm just gonna rent. Like I, I don't even care about maybe wasting money for a few years because. I'd rather not get into a co-op and get trapped under their confinement and be regulated and be dominated and be and have not have a say in how the building gets run or how if I can sublet it or not or I might even get rejected or if I sell it the buyer of my home might get rejected. I mean there's too it's too too many too much volatility there. Uh, what do you think about that? Oh, I hear what your sentiment all the time. People the co-op scheme is unique to New York and is almost the polar opposite of what the housing experience is for, for many people in the, in the country outside of New York. Yeah. So I, I can recognize that. So I understand the uniqueness of it. I understand the limitations. To your point, we're talking about board rejections. Yeah, people get rejected. And if you're a seller and you need to sell and you get three board rejections, you're in trouble. You're in deep doo doo. Oof. I get that. I personally, right? So now to play devil's advocate, I live in a co op. This is a co op building. I like co-ops because I find that the they're run better. I think they're run better. People follow the rules because the board has a lot more power and authority to reprimand poor behavior. So I like that. I like that my neighbors, when they buy into the building, are fully vetted. In the midst of a pandemic, co-ops typically do better than their counterparts and other types of property, than condos, for example. Right, um, because of the vetting, making sure that people are financially responsible. A co-op is, uh, you know, is only as strong as its weakest shareholder, and the board makes sure of that. So that's why I like co-ops. But I get it. I understand. It's an old school regime. I get it. it it's you know, um, the board has a ton of control over people, and millennials buying into the market don't like that. They don't like to be told you can only sublet for two years during your ownership. You can't uh, renovate without going through all of these hoops or, you know, I get it. Um, it's, it's preference, but if they're going to live in Manhattan, 70% of the market, you got to gotta get used to it. In the age of Coinbase and Robinhood, <laughs> it, where investing is all the rage and a millennial buyer buying a home and saying, and then the and then the co-op board telling them you can't rent it out. They're just gonna the millennials are gonna hate that idea. But just like you said, to your point, 
Brokers and owners of co-ops in New York City should thank the real estate lords in 2008, the real estate gods or real estate lords in 2008, 2009, because when the market crashed, the co-op valuations stood relatively, relatively firm. Uh, one of them, one of the reasons being that, like you said, the buyers are vetted, they're financially strong, they're liquid, and they all paid their maintenance and none of them went into bankruptcy. And, to your, and listen, and, and to those, you know, if you don't like the way your co-op operates, there is a, uh, there's ways to hold the board accountable, right? It's, I look at co-ops like, like, our, like the government and like society. The board, you know, democracy is difficult. If you don't like the way it's run, but, you know, get other shareholders on board, get a new board in place, uh, call a special election. I mean, there's the bylaws of the building dictate how the board's supposed to run. Work within that, within within those uh, those rules to, to make change in your building. Democracy is not easy. Democracy is hard. It's no different in a co-op building as it is, you know, trying to get uh, whatever change you want out, you know, in society. It's difficult. So, uh, well, democracy is definitely not easy. I think the gap between the co-op world and the value of the co-op and the value of the condo is going to continue to spread, continue to grow. But this transparency law, I think, will help unlock some of the values of co-ops again. And I think I think I want to wrap it wrap it up uh, right there. Yeah. And now we're going to pivot to rentals. The many people have this, and I, I, having me representing hundreds of landlords in Manhattan, we get I get this question all the time from the tenant community, and I, and I get it from colleagues too. They ask me like, "Hey, talk like, is this law like still like in effect?" So there was a proposal on the ban of tenants paying rental broke uh, the, the broker fee to the broker, and the, now the landlords must shoulder that cost, and the broker fee is capped at one month. And that proposal was was issued right before the pandemic uh, in 2019, and then it was kind of put on the shelf in 2020 because of the pandemic. Uh, do you know what's going on with that? To be to be honest, I'm not entirely sure. Okay, I know, I, yeah, I know there was something that came out. I know, I think the appellate division came out, and made a decision, um, uh, but I don't. I to be honest, yeah, I don't know the. Uh, I will skip that. Uh, the there's an update on the new rental. Was there an update on the new rental regulation that was issued by the, the state legislature of New York in 2019? Uh, let's talk about rent stabilization, rent control. People are protected. Landlords are screwed. It's been about a year and a year and change since that issue, that that law was mandated. Have you seen a a shift in the market of landlords or owners that are coming to you now uh, because of this new law? Well, it's funny. Um, you know, at my old at my semi offer, but the firm that I'm of counsel to does a a lot of landlord tenant work. They have an entire landlord tenant department. Um, what's funny is, and we were having these conversations before the pandemic started, is that those rent law, the rent laws that came in effect in 2019, really decimated in many ways, started to decimate the commercial market, the multifamily market, right? Um, buildings of a certain size, because it really just kept apartments in regulation indefinitely. Very difficult to get apartments out of rent regulation. Then the pandemic rolls up, and hits in March, you know, March, really just uh, seven months later, eight months later. And you ha it's hard to decipher just how, what the impact of was that law because the pandemic was just so overwhelming to the entire market. So uh, certainly, you, you know, you've seen 
that law impact landlords a tremendous amount. It started in the middle and end of 2019, and then the pandemic took hold in 2020. And I listen. I'm cur- I myself am curious to see what the ramifications are once these pandemic um, protections go away, moratoriums and things that look like are going to be running until you know it looks like Como is going to sign it until the end of August. So you know. It, Long story short, it's very difficult to be a commercial landlord right now. Got a lot of lot of uh, headwinds. If, if you had 10 million bucks right now in cash, yeah. would you buy a multifamily in New York, New York City? I love real estate. I love real estate. I'm not saying yes, I'm not saying no, but I love real estate and I would look for something. Okay. Yeah. You talked about the eviction, eviction ban in New York State. Uh, it was extended until, extended until the end of August. Let's just say August rolls around. Uh, now you can start evicting tenants if a landlord wanted. What's the process like? How long would it take? How much would it cost? What's the gist on that? Listen, you know, New York is a is a very tenant friendly jurisdiction. Um, a savvy tenant, even before the pandemic, you know, you see tenants who do things to prolong what should be a summary proceeding, meaning it should be a fairly quick proceeding. You get a savvy tenant who understands how the housing court works and files order show causes. I mean, it could take, I've seen it take years. And then you get tenants who, and this is certainly not allowed, but you'll see tenants file fictitious bankruptcy proceedings and that stays an eviction. So even if you have um, you know, a judgment of possession and, a, and, a, and the issuance of an eviction, Filing a, a, a fictitious bankruptcy proceeding uh, in bankruptcy court stays that housing court uh, eviction. So tenants know this. Listen, tenants Isn't that are smart. Bank fraud? Of that, that is well, that is certainly a fraudulent filing. Yeah, yeah, that is. But you have people who are fighting for their lives, who are fighting for their homes, who are fighting to to just you know not be out on the street. They do anything. It, it's it's listen, it's scary stuff, man. It's um, you see it and. Not good. Some people say real estate is a full contact sport, and some in, in this arena, it certainly is. You had spoken to a client of mine who had a tenant that was potentially not paying rent for a few months. An owner like that, do they have any real short-term options? <sighs> Look, there, as I tell a lot of people, there's the legal and then there's the practical, right? The legal is, well, are you going to be able eventually to get them out? And are you eventually going to be able to get a money judgment against them? Potentially. How long is that going to take? Well, now that, you know, if it, if that, that answer will then will pivot to the practical. You know, if you want to get them out, maybe waive some rent. If you uh, want, uh, want them to, to stay for a longer period of time, maybe negotiate a lower rent amount. Uh, everything right now is negotiable. People, the number one question I get whether it's in the leasing space or if it's in the transactional buy and sell space is, can we do that? Can I do that? Can I get that? Can we do this? Can we say that? Can we try and get this? Anything is negotiable. You could do anything. Um, you just gotta, you gotta negotiate for it. And so um, can you negotiate a better deal in the midst of a pandemic that maybe you take a couple bucks less, but that salvages the relationship and salvages the tenant? I'm seeing a lot of that. You're seeing a lot of tenants, a lot of landlords who are making big concessions because they realize the court system right now is not helpful. So yeah, definitely, certainly not pro landlord. Uh, I, I want to wrap this up. I, I know you're a busy man, having your own practice. 
So, uh, uh, I want to say thank you so much for your time. You know, I know you don't have a lot of time, but uh, you did come out and and join uh, join on one of our Mambro cycling cycling trips. I was hoping you were going to mention this, and if you didn't, I was going to mention it for the listeners on the podcast. For those that don't know, Talk is an incredible. So, I mean, you can you can cycle with the best of them. Well, no, I don't. I'm not really a, a spandex-wearing cyclist that you know does loops around Central Park. But Doesn't I'll, matter. You don't dress the park. I have a pretty. Can, yeah. I have a pretty it. heavy a steel bike. <laughs> it's a gravel bike. It's not a carbon fiber speed bike. But but yeah, I, I think uh, you're due for another map road trip. I am. I definitely am. I'm definitely in. And uh, for those of listening to the podcast, if Takayamaguchi ever says to you. On a Thursday, hey, do you want to go on a bike ride? Short bike ride on Saturday. Expect it to be at least 40 miles. <laughs> 40? Yeah, 40 is not bad. <laughs> uh, what we'll do is we'll do a, a, a trip. Not really a trip. We'll do a, uh, we'll do like two loops on Central Park. You know? That's a, that's. What is it like uh, 12, 15 miles, something? Uh, two. I think it's about five and change. One loop. Okay. So, so two loops will be ten, and then and then you'll bike from from here till up there. So probably you know it'll probably be like under a twenty mile trip. Going to Nyack is where I'm gonna have an issue. <laughs> We're gonna have to do that though Going this to year. Back that'll be a good. That'll be a good. That'll be a good exercise. The Mambro for those who are not who are listening and not have not heard of it, uh, it is not sexist. It's Manbro. It's Man is short for Manhattan, and Bro is short for Brooklyn. So, and if sometimes we have Queens riders, so we'll call it Manbro Queens. But uh, it, the, the, come and join if you have a bicycle. You live in New York City, please join us. Uh, you, we're usually out once a week, usually on a Saturday morning. Uh, so come and join us, and uh, it's generally a good time. So, uh, Andrew, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me, and uh, keep chopping wood, brother. We're chopping wood. wood. Again, follow Andrew on Instagram at Georges Law Firm, uh, J-O-R-G-E-S Law Firm, and his website, www.georgeslawfirm.com. He's always available. If you need help on closings, if you're buying something, if you're selling something, you need help on closings, reach out to Andrew. He's the guy. If you need any help with any legal issues that you're facing on, whether your ownership, your selling, your tenants, any sort of that matter, feel that feel free to reach out to Andrew as well. He's one of the resources, the go-to resources for real estate in the state of New York. So thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Talk Podcast, and we will see you soon.